Okay, you can turn your hearing aids down. No. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, I wanted to start by reading the handout that I distributed last week. What is the Torah? The Torah is the eternal living monument of God's rendezvous with Israel, the nation's raison d'etre, the soul that enables the nation to survive every trial, to rise to undreamed of spiritual heights and realize the goal and hope of its creator. Whenever the Torah is read, Jews relive the revelation at Sinai when our ancestors gathered around a lowly mountain and heard God speak to them. As they did then, we seek to come closer to our maker by hearing his teachings and rededicating ourselves to their fulfillment. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to be wearing this as the teaching hat that I'm wearing, presenting Torah as a devout, observant Jew would present it. And I think in light of everything that I said last week, I got a very excellent question from Judge Milliken. Thank you. And this is so important that I really think we need to devote some time to its consideration. So let me read the question that he emailed me. How do Jews react to our including and calling it Torah in our Bible? It seems that they consider it uniquely their own, and yet it is so much of who we are. So, I felt it important to respond to that, and then we will have some discussion time, because I think that this is an extremely important subject, not only for understanding the Torah, but also for Jewish-Christian relations. So my response is in several parts. Number one, Jews certainly do not object to, Christ, uh, to Christians including Torah in their Bible. Okay? They don't really object. Provided, and here comes the really important part. Number one, they do call it Torah and not the law. Call it by its proper name. It is Torah. It is divine instruction. Don't call it the law. And there are very specific reasons for that. Two, don't call Tanakh the Old Testament, but call, the, call it the Hebrew Scriptures or Tanakh. That is really the proper term, because what does Old Testament imply? It's outdated, it's old, it's been superseded. And that is something the Jews positively reject. Yes? I was going to get tough nun kaf, but... <laughs> I have a problem with depth perception. That's why I tend to go so deeply into subjects. <laughs> Tanakh. It is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. 
it was Pastor Michael's decision to call what we're covering this fall Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim <coughs> that led me really to teach the way I'm going to be teaching here. So don't call it the Old Testament, call it Tanakh or the Hebrew Scriptures. C, they do not misuse it by either A, don't interpret it Christologically. And I know that's something that Christians have a very hard time wrapping themselves around because Christians are so used to interpreting the entire Bible Christologically. In fact, what I'm saying is essentially everything that John David has taught you about interpreting the Bible Christologically, just don't use that with Tanakh. Don't use that with the Hebrew Scriptures until you thoroughly understand it on its own terms and until you realize that by interpreting the Hebrew scriptures Christologically, you are reinterpreting them in a way which is not accepted by its original recipients. That absolutely has to be borne in mind. Because otherwise, you unintentionally stray into interpretations of Hebrew scriptures which have formed the basis for much of Christian antisemitism. That is critical. If you're going to interpret Tanakh Christologically, then you absolutely first have to grasp it on its own terms. And then you have to consciously realize when you do it, that you are reinterpreting scripture Christologically and that your Jewish brothers and sisters do not accept that, A, and number two, are not interested in your telling them this is how you should really read it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now this from the heart because this is something I've experienced as a Jewish person. When Christians tell us, listen, this is how you should really read your scriptures, that to us is the height of chutzpah. Who the hell are you to tell us how to read our scriptures? I hate to put it that bluntly, but that is exactly the way Christians frequently come across. A second thing, don't misuse it by using it merely as a straw man to kick down, knock down as part of Christian polemics. I'm sometimes asked by Christians, why do Jews hate Paul of Tarsus so much? Well, all you need to do is read Romans and realize that this is, this is a text that Christians have used for centuries, for millennia, to treat the whole of Judaism as a straw man to knock down. Okay? And that's another reason why, especially in the Pauline epistles, it might be a good idea to be very careful about how and why he is referring to the law, the Torah, in the terms that he does. 
as a Jewish person, what I would say is that Paul's experience of the Torah is in many ways idiosyncratic. Okay? He had a particular experience of a relationship to the Torah where for him it went from being his whole way of life for which he was willing to contend most vociferously against Jews he thought were misinterpreting the Torah until it finally towards, you know, at, at some point became something like a bogeyman. And by the way, there is an excellent book. I cannot recommend this enough. The book is titled Rebecca's Children. by Alan F. Siegel. And I'm not confident of the spelling on that name, but Rebecca's Children, and it has a subtitle, because one of the things that he does there that I think is absolutely brilliant is explain some of Paul's polemics against the Torah as a result of a dissonance-reducing strategy using the theory of cognitive dissonance. That Paul's conversion to the Jesus movement was in some ways a very traumatic choice between two very close alternatives. And that as part of the dissonance reducing strategy that he had to adapt, he went there to the extreme of disparaging the alternative he had rejected. And that really is not something that anybody should do. And that is something, in other words, don't use Torah as a straw man, and that's why one of the things that I you know, hear from Christians all the time is the important, is, is, is a common theme. They say, well, who can live by the Torah? There's no forgiveness there. The heck there isn't. The heck there isn't. And the other thing is, we are in some ways, or Christians are in some ways, crippled by our obsession with the concept of original sin. This morning, it's very interesting. How many of you ever listen on Sunday mornings to On Being with Krista Tippett on NPR? It's brilliant. They had, she had an absolutely fabulous conversation between a liberal and a conservative pundit on how to hand, handle a civil conversation. And the, the conservative Eric Erickson is an evangelical Christian, grew up in the South. And of course, you know, in the South, there are two things that are absolutely crucial. You got to be raised right and you got to be saved. Okay. And one of the things he said is, we're all sinners, we're all sinners, we're all sinners. There is an important rabbinic statement that I would love to have tattooed on my forehead. It says, do not see yourself as a sinner in your own sight. 
do not see yourself as a sinner in your own sight. Why? Because in some sense, Erickson himself hit the nail on the head where he said, no one should be defined by the worst thing they've done. No one should be defined by the worst thing you've done. And that means when you call yourself a sinner, you are identifying yourself with your sins. Don't do that. And the other thing is, if you consider yourself a sinner, what you're going to do is live down to your expectations. Probably one of the most brilliant Jewish thinkers in all of Jewish history post-biblically was the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rav Schneer Zalman of Liadi. And his masterwork was called the Tanya. And the very first section is where he develops his theme of what he calls the Benoni, the middleman. Okay? And basically what he's taking is the idea that at every single moment in time, a person should regard themselves as if their actions were evenly balanced between sin and righteousness. And that therefore the next decision you make will tip the scales one way or the other. And that that's not only true for the individual, but for the entire world. Think of the entire world as evenly divided between sin and righteousness, evenly balanced. The next action you perform will tip the balance. And there is a complete belief in Judaism in the moral ability of humankind to do the right thing. And I'm sorry, we really sometimes forget, we, you know, one of the things that I keep saying, we, you know, that Christians need to remember is when you talk about original sin, the one thing you tend to forget is original righteousness. And that the image and likeness of God were not lost with the fall. In other words, read and study the Torah on its own terms. Okay? At this point, I want to stop. Any questions, comments? Yeah. Two closely related questions. One you at least perhaps partially already answered, which the question I had last week was, as a devout Jew formally and later an Episcopal priest, how did you reconcile your two faith traditions and related to that is to what extent in Christianity do we, in interpreting the Torah, corrupt the Torah? As for my own personal, how do I reconcile those two things? Consistency is a luxury I refuse to allow myself. Uh, 
It's not just politics, although I'll tell you one of the things, politics has gotten a very bad name, and it's probably because of the way politicians have misused politics, too. Okay? I mean, let's, let's not judge our politicians by their worst acts or statements either, whether of the left or of the right. I think there's more than enough tribalism on both sides right now to endanger our democracy. And I don't care whether you're quote left or quote right, it's basically we're all guilty of the same tribalism. And that's what's got to stop. And your other question, the other part of it, that was, okay. I, that's what I'm trying to do is to set out here what it would mean for Christians not to misuse the Torah. And the main thing I'd say is, number one, read it on its own terms. Make sure that you've really understood it in a deep fashion before you even dare to try to figure out, well, how does this fit in to my Christian point of view? Because it has to in some way, because Christians include it in the Bible. But the way they've included it and the way they've interpreted are calculated, are calculated to not only upset Jews, but essentially in a fashion which is polemically anti-Judaic. And that has deep roots in history. In a sense, the way Jews look at it is that when the Christian church became Gentile, it turned against its own mother. It turned against its own mother. Okay? And you said you had two questions? What was the other one? Or did that cover both bases? Okay. Any other questions, comments? There is that Jews believe there is a natural inner awareness of morality. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that the one thing that Jews believe in is that at any given time, now it doesn't mean that absolutely every act of virtue or courage or righteousness is within the reach of every individual at any time, but whenever we are actually faced with a live and real choice between good and evil, human beings can and should choose the good. That that freedom of choice has never been lost. Christians seem to think that given an even choice between good and evil, we will always choose evil because of our innate sinfulness. And that's something Jews reject. That's something Jews reject. And it's important to realize that. In other words, when you try to say that Christ died for your sins, what you're basically offering the Jews is something that they think is not an illness, a remedy for something that's not an illness.
Okay. Is there equivalency uh, or a similarity to original sin in Judaism that would speak to a kind of a universal propensity to evil? Yes, you, the, absolutely. Jews absolutely believe in the Yetzir Hara, the inclination to evil. It's there. But it is not predominant. It is balanced equally with the Yetzir Hatov, the inclination to good. For Jews, these two forces within the individual are in constant conflict, but they are always evenly balanced. Now, what you need to realize is that it doesn't necessarily mean that every choice is open to you at any given time. Anybody who's tried to kick a bad habit knows this. Okay. In other words, there are, as one Jewish moral philosopher put it, choice points in your life. Think of your life as a battleground between the inclination to good and the inclination to evil. The inclination to good has a fair amount of territory that is under its control. Things that you wouldn't even think of doing, okay? Or good actions that you wouldn't even think of refraining from. On the other hand, the inclination to evil has a whole lot of territory under its control. But there's that no man's land in between, and that's where moral choices become real. And with every choice you make, you move the battle line. So if you make a choice for good, all of a sudden, actions that you wouldn't have thought yourself capable of in the past now become possible. Whereas if you choose evil, things you never would have thinking of doing in the past now suddenly become entertained. You see what I'm saying? It's how many of you ever watched the program The Price is Right? Okay. Do you remember there's that one game they play where you've got this green bar and it goes up and up and up on this scale and you're supposed to stop it when you think that the actual price of the item is within the green zone. Okay? In some ways, that's the moral life. There's that green zone, which is the open territory where the Yetzir Hatov and the Yetzir Hara, the inclination to good and the inclination to evil, are balanced. And what's critical is at that point, you choose the good so that you keep the zone moving higher and higher. And Jesus would have had this belief, and so his purpose would have been to eliminate the lower end of the bar? Don't, let's get into that. <laughs> okay, this is a class in Torah, not the New Testament. As someone who has been raised in a Christian community, how can I read the prophecy of Isaiah without seeing Jesus in it? I, I, I'm having, I understand your powerful statement, but I don't know how we do that. I can answer that in a very few words. The servant is 
Israel the people. The servant is Israel the people, not an individual. Yeah. No, yep. It seems like there's no other group of people that is so forthright about their experience with God and with one another. And they're so vulnerable as a result. I wonder if it, that is not part of the reason that makes them almost scapegoats for the rest of the world's feelings and thoughts, uh, denials perhaps about how life really is. One of the things that's interesting about that <clears throat> is there is in the Talmud a passage about how do you handle someone who comes to you, a Gentile who comes to you and say, I want to become Jewish. I want to con you know, become Jewish. And one of the things that the court, the, you know, the people you know, entertaining this are supposed to say to them is, why on earth would you want to do that? Jews are persecuted all over the world and, you know, by everyone. Why on earth would you want to do that? And they have to respond, I know that, but I still want to become Jewish. In other words, yeah, you're right. In some sense, it is precisely, it's like Tevye said in Fiddler on the Roof. I realize we're the chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you choose somebody else? Okay, yeah. Oh. Uh, your microphone's not on. Uh, when reading the Torah, what are the main themes that we should keep in mind when interpreting the scripture? Hang on for the next class. <laughs> yeah. Wait for the microphone, please. Series, but your earlier lectures I have listened to. Jesus taught from what we call the old, referred to as the Old Testament. For the he Torah. taught Tanakh. Right. He had been immersed in it as since his childhood. So uh, you referred to Paul. In our misinterpretations of Torah, do we actually corrupt our own teachings in the New Testament by incorrectly interpreting what Jesus taught? Uh, that's a good point, because Jews would say absolutely. Um, if you remember, think back to the piece that we did, John and David and I did, which started with that story of um, the cobbler by Tolstoy. Uh, when Tolstoy was um, getting ready to write his sort of spiritual testimony, his confessional, um, he took the text of the Sermon on the Mount to a rabbi and the rabbi went through it verse by verse and said, yes, we believe that. Yes, we believe that. Yes, we teach that. 
And then at the end he said, let me ask you a question now. Do Christians actually live this way? And Tolstoy had no answer. Tolstoy had no answer for it. What Jesus taught was the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. And that's how you have to read Jesus. He had a fairly radical interpretation of them, but it was not outside the mainstream of first century Palestinian Judaisms. And notice I use the plural there. Because at the time, the Jewish world was very divided. Get two Jews together, you have three opinions. Okay. Over there. So when we read the Torah, and we put our interpretation into that, that Christ is the expected servant, what aren't the aren't the Jewish people still waiting for something or is that a misconception on my part is there a messiah they're waiting for well has the messianic era come heck no where's the messianic era how can the messiah have come if the messianic era isn't here Ask yourself that. I haven't read the book, but there was a marvelous book published a few years ago by a Jewish scholar who said, there is no Messiah, and you're it. Okay. In other words, yes, we're waiting for the Messianic era as the fulfillment of all human hopes and expectations. But... There are certain things that are the hallmark of the Messianic era. The universal reign of justice, peace, and love. The universal acknowledgement of the God of Israel and submission to the God of Israel. And that means certain things like, number one, the abolition of warfare. Number two, the abolition of economic inequality, the abolition of the use of violence as an instrument of so-called justice. Those are hallmarks of the Messianic era. And Jews would say, yeah, we're still waiting for the... What did so many of the observant Jews sing as they were going to their deaths in the gas chambers? It was that one of the 13 principles of faith of Moses Maimonides. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarry, yet will I wait daily. That's what they sang on their way to their death. Fully cognizant that many of the people who put them in line for that gas chamber considered themselves Christians. Over here. Who's going to come back again as the second coming? And 
why can't we look at that as? Okay, this is where I think uh, Jews and Christians who really kind of get what the term Messiah means come together. What Jews are saying to Christians is what you expect at the second coming is exactly what we expect in the Messianic era. Okay. And that's where, if you will, the two faiths converge. But there is, in a sense, a positive role for the Jewish people to basically remind Christians, don't get triumphalistic. The already ain't that much when you look at the state of the world. And in the set meantime, what you as Christians, if you really believe Jesus is the Messiah, then you'd better be living a messianic lifestyle in a very non-messianic world. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount just ain't pious hopes. It just ain't dim expectations. That is your manual. That is your manual for messianic ethics in a non-messianic world. And what is going to be the consequence to you personally if you really start living that out? Jesus himself was clear. You're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, I heard a lecture a while back that Jesus never said anything original. Because like you said, he taught the Torah, right? He reiterated and refocused the Jewish ideals and faith. From a Jewish perspective, how did you view what Jesus taught and said to the Jewish people? Okay, Jesus invade against the misuse of tradition to undermine the written text. What he considered to be, but what's very interesting, if you look at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, that whole thing which are usually called the antitheses, but which... Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid should say should be called hypertheses. What he's articulating is actually the school of one of the two great rabbinic sages of Israel, Shammai, the stricter set. Okay. In other words, one of the big debates between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel is the intention to sin tantamount to the act if you don't carry it out. The school of Hillel said no. Even if you are prevented from committing the act by circumstances beyond your control. You're not to be held accountable for that. The school of Shammai said yes. With certain exceptions, the rabbis said, in this world, the way of life is according to the school of Hillel. But in the world to come, i.e. in the Messianic age, it's going to be according to the school of Shammai. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, yeah, the Messianic era is here, but what that means is you have to live that way. And if you don't want to live that way, what you're basically saying is, I don't believe that the Messiah has come. Okay, I need to move on. Great opening. 
Yeah, I've got three pages of notes here, and I'm not even through the first page yet. Okay, but this is so important, I feel it has to be addressed. The next point I want to consider is Jews do consider Torah uniquely their own. Okay? They consider Torah as their pride and joy. It's theirs. It's ours, I should say, since I'm taking the position of being a Jew. Now, why? First of all, it was revealed to our Israelite ancestors in their own language. It was revealed to our Israelite ancestors in our own language. How many people here read Hebrew? Okay, you're probably the only one then in this entire room besides me who's actually read the Hebrew scriptures then. There is a wonderful saying in Italian that I once learned at a conference I went to, traditore traditore, which means every translator is a traitor. In a very real sense, you have to understand a biblical text in its own language. In other words, you really want to read the Torah like Jews read the Torah, learn Hebrew. I'm serious. Because the fact of the matter is in translating he, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures into English, you are not just translating from one language to another, you're translating into one language family to a different language family. You are translating from a Semitic language, which is structured completely differently, into an Indo-European language, which has a different structure. And in some ways, it's untranslatable, especially since so much of the Hebrew Scriptures is poetry. It's poetry. How do you translate poetry? Well, you can't. But the one thing you can never do with a poem is interpret it literally. When Bobby Burns wrote, Oh, my love's like a red, red rose that blossoms in the spring. I mean, no one in their right mind would come to him and say, Well, does she have thorns? You totally misunderstood the point of the poem if you ask a question like that. But we are continually... In our modern world, when we only know Indo-European languages, when we only know English, we're continually asking, does this rose have thorns? So, yes, language is crucial. Second, it was given to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people, to be the basis of their own particular way of life. The Torah was given at Sinai not to be the way of life of all the nations. It was given at Sinai to be the way of life of the children of Israel. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself or a little behind myself. I don't know. But look at Exodus or in Hebrew Shemot. Verses 19, 3 through 6.
Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Hold on. Do, do, do. Okay, I got the wrong Bible here. Because I had this bookmarked. Come on. Come on, Kindle. Okay, the old-fashioned way. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Okay, who wants to read? I can. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay. I want to focus on those words. Mamlechet ko'anim v'goi kadosh. A kingdom of priests, or a, you know, a realm of priests, and a holy nation. In other words, Israel is called to a peculiar vocation among the nations. Is every member of Christ's church a pastor? Not an ordained pastor, right? You have ordained pastors that you pay. Probably they would say not enough. And they are ordained to fulfill a specific role in the community of faith. Israel is being ordained to perform a specific role in the community of nations. To be the priesthood who stands, I love this passage from my bar mitzvah portion, where a plague breaks out and, and Moses says to Aaron, take your incense, go out and offer, you know, your censer, take and go out and offer incense because the plague is broken forth. And Aaron stands between the living and the dead and stops the plague with his censer. That's a priest. That's what Israel is to do, to stand between life and death on behalf of humanity, offering worship to God. That's what it means to be a priest, a nation of priests, and a holy people. Now, you know, if you looked at that, normally you would say, well, people and kingdom go together, and priest and holy go together. What do you mean by a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? That's because we are called to be the one people for whom your entire life is dedicated to Kedushah, the sanctification, Kedushah Hashem, the sanctification of the name. 
That is what the whole purpose of, and that's what the Torah is meant to be, to enable the Jewish people to do it. Now, do Jews have an understanding of how Gentiles can participate in this? Oh, yeah. It's called the seven Noahide commandments that were given to the children of Noah. Those are universal. And let me enumerate them for you. Number one, don't curse God. Do not curse God. Number two, do not worship idols. In other words, don't worship anything in the place of God. Number three, do not murder. Number four, do not steal even the smallest amount. Number five, don't commit incest and adultery. In other words, respect the sanctity of established family relationships. Number six, don't eat a limb from a live animal. In other words, I'm sorry, no Rocky Mountain oysters for you all. Okay, anybody know what Rocky Mountain oysters are? You're shaking your head no. Bless your innocence. Okay, how do they turn bulls into steers? <laughs> yeah, okay. But actually what that sixth commandment is, is in its broadest sense, don't be cruel to animals. And the seventh is establish a system of courts to enforce the other six. Now that is the only positive commandment of the seven Noahide laws. There is no positive commandment to worship God. There's no positive commandment to go to church. There are just six things you're supposed to abstain from and the one positive commandment is make sure that there is a system of courts, as it were, to establish justice by enforcing the other six laws. That's it. And a person who keeps those, a Gentile who keeps those, according to the rabbis, has a portion in the world to come along with Israelites. That's all you need to do. That's it. The bar for you is pretty low. The bar for us is pretty high. You get seven commandments, we get 613. Okay? Because we are to be different. We are to be a holy nation. We are to be a kingdom of priests. Okay? And another reason why Jews consider the Torah as particularly their own is that they continue to live by it to this day. The Torah, in fact, one of the things that you will consistently find is that, uh, you know, across the board on different parts of Jewishness today, they will say, well, what is it that Jews live by? They live by Torah umitzvot, Torah and the commandments, Torah and the commandments. And notice the commandments are not the whole of the Torah. Divine instruction 
and divine commandments which give shape. Because those 613 commandments, there are 365 thou shalt nots and 248 thou shalts. So I immediately say 365, that's one for each day of the year, right? Exactly. In other words, when are you to observe the commandments? 24, 7, 365. That's why there are, 300, that's why there are 365 thou shalt nots. And as for the 248, uh, in an, one ancient teaching, that is the number of sinews and tissues in the human body. In other words, those positive commandments are an operating manual, not only for being fully human, but being a kingdom of priests. That's what your life is supposed to look like. Now, if you're not satisfied with the, 300, with the seven Noahide commandments and you want the whole package of 365, I'm sure that when he comes in two weeks, Rabbi Spitzer will be glad to entertain anyone here who wants to convert to Judaism. Just remember, there's one catch. If you're male, you've got to be circumcised. And before you say, well, I was medically circumcised, that doesn't count. They have to draw the blood of the covenant. That can be a great disincentive to many people for conversion to Judaism. It's meant to be. Okay? At this point, again, I want to stop for questions and comments. I'm not getting to much of what I wanted to cover this week, but I think that this is such an important topic that we really do have to cover it thoroughly. Judge, did I answer your question? Yes. It almost seems as if uh, we should start out as Jews in the hope of becoming Christian. Well, there were a lot of Christians who thought the same way. Paul didn't like them. They were called the circumcision party. They say, you really want to be a follower of Jesus? First, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep the Torah. Okay? Now... Why did they say this? It's, it's sort of like this. One of the things which my stepson's granddaddy enjoyed as a coal miner was some of the best medical coverage that you'll ever want to find in the United States. He was covered by the UMWA uh, health plan. And you might say, well, how can I get that medical coverage? The answer is simple. I got to join the union. I got to become a minor. Okay, so you want the benefits of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? You got to join the union. You got to have the union card. Okay, because the promises of the messianic era were made to the Jewish people. So who are the primary beneficiaries of it? The Jewish people. Okay, now, I'm going to close with a real zinger, okay, and at this point, 
do you have a vacuum cleaner ready for all the broken glass? Okay. The judge asked, it is so much of who we are. Well, a good Jew would say, since Christians have consistently failed to do everything I've talked about, to this very day, what right can you really, by what right can you really claim that Torah is so much of who you are? By what right can you claim that Torah is so much of who you are? follow Jesus, isn't that what we're doing? I go back to what the rabbi asked Tolstoy after he'd read through the Sermon on the Mount and said, yeah, this is in the Torah, this is in the Torah, this is in the Torah, we teach this too. And then he asked Tolstoy, do Christians really observe this? Read the Sermon on the Mount, take it seriously, and ask yourself, is this the way I'm really living? I didn't say you weren't a sinner. I didn't say you were a sinner. The mistake is calling yourself a sinner instead of, I am a person who has sinned. Let's get our facts straight. Okay? I am a person who has sinned, but I'm also a person who is capable of great righteousness. Uh, there is a very famous midrash in the Talmud that says, in the world to come, the yetzer hara, the evil inclination, will be destroyed. And both the righteous and the wicked will mourn. Because the righteous will say, I never realized how great the evil inclination was. And the wicked will say, I never realized how minute the wicked inclination was. The size of your, you want to know how, how large your evil inclination is, your Yetzirah? How much of a saint are you? Another way of looking at it, the Yetzirah is like a rubber band to keep you close to the earth if you will. The higher you go, the tighter it gets. Yeah. My mother conceived me. How do the Jews handle that? Uh, well, you got to put it in context. One thing that Christians never do when they read Psalm 51 is look at the superscription. What had just happened in David's life? He'd just been told by Nathan, you're the man. You're the one who's abused your kingship. 
by taking another man's wife and having him killed. Okay, so he was making a full confession. But again, that's not to understand that we have lost the inclination to good or that the two have gotten out of balance. Always, Yetzir HaTov, Yetzir Hara are equally strong. The time has come. We are at our breakoff point. Next week, since I don't want to leave you with a prescription to which I do not have the fulfillment, we are going to take a look at how do Jews read the Torah. Okay? And the, there's a handout on you that you have received. I want you to take that home. I want you to take it home and study it. All three portions. The first is by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner in his book, the introduction to his book, and this is really the basis of a lot of what I'd like to do next week. God was in this place and I, I did not know. And that repetition of I is critical. God was in this place and I, capital I, I, small I, did not know. Because that's the literal translation of the Hebrew. Okay? And that will be critical for understanding. The text we're going to be looking at, the text we're going to be looking at, if we get that far, because I do want to do some background in terms of how Jews read it. Bereshit, or Genesis 28. Let me flip this so it can be. Ten through nineteen. Okay? This entire book, by the way, was written on one verse out of that passage. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>